I'm going to read from verses 25 to 33 of Genesis 49. From the God of your Father who helps you and by the Almighty who blesses you with blessings of heaven above and blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb. The blessings of your father have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors. Up to the uttermost bound of the everlasting hills, may they be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he devours the prey, and in the evening he divides the spoil. All of these are the twelve tribes of Israel. And this is what their father said to them when he blessed them. He blessed them, every one with the blessing appropriate to him. Then he charged them and said to them, I'm about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. In the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field from Ephron the Hittite for a burial site. There they buried Abraham and his wife Sarah. There they buried Isaac and his wife Rebekah. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it, purchased from the sons of Het. When Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew his feet into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Father, as we look at your word, we trust that your word is alive and active and sharper than a double-edged sword, able to penetrate the very marrow and joints, to even divide, to judge the thoughts and intentions of our hearts so that we will be open and laid bare to you. And so based upon that truth, Lord, we pray that you would do heart work and Everybody's heart here this morning. In different ways, we need to have your word penetrate that most secret part of our being, the heart. And so we pray, Lord, by the power of your spirit through your word, you would do that this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever gone repelling? Last time I went repelling, maybe it was... 30 years ago. And I can remember, I used to repel a lot when I was in college with my roommates. And if you've ever gone repelling, there's quite, there's almost nothing like being like Batman, you know, on a building where you're kind of horizontal and you can let go and look back like this and you can be a hundred feet or a couple hundred feet off the ground. And it's, it's amazing. It's, it's wild and it's a, a thrill of a joy unlike any other, if you've ever done that. And it's not easy. It's easy actually to repel down. But what is the hardest part about repelling? Going over the edge. That is the hardest part each time for me. Going down, all she basically do is kick off and go like this and... There's really not much to that. But going over that edge, you have to be willing to do what? Have you ever gone repelling? If you go repelling, then structurally, 
always would tell me, you're not leaning back far enough. You're not leaning, lean back, Tom. Lean, trust the heart. Lean all the way back. Because if you don't lean all the way back and you're going over the edge, what could happen? Smack, you you could hit your face, right? Because you're not going back horizontal. You're kind of going at an angle. And if you're not careful, you can come back and, and hit your head on your nose. If you really want to have a good experience of repelling, when you get to that edge, you have to lean all the way back and trust the ropes and trust the harness and lean all the way back, almost horizontal. And you have to press like into that harness and go over the edge. And this, I think, is a good example of, of trust. You have to put your weight into that harness, into that rope, and lean all the way into it. Or you can say press all the way into it, because if you don't, you're not really going to have a joyful thrill of true repelling. It might be a little bit harmful to your head. (laughs) That's why you wear a helmet oftentimes. You have to lean all the way back got to really press into it. And I think, in a similar way, that's what we have here with Genesis 49. Ultimately, I think this is the picture in its context, both in terms of the text of Genesis, but also the history of the text as well. Because Israel is receiving the Pentateuch, including the book of Genesis, as they're about to go into the Promised Land, It could be 30 years, 20 years, 40 years that they're going to go into it. But the nation Israel has received this book and other books. And they're supposed to go into the promised land, but they end up not doing that for about 40 years. When they receive this, they're hearing about how God has blessed all the different tribes of Israel. And he's blessed them, if you look at verse 28, blessings that are appropriate to them. And they are to take this word, to hear this word, and to trust God, and to move on into that promised land. That is the ultimate objective. And even currently, I'm reading again to the Old Testament, and now I'm in the book of Deuteronomy. And it seems to me, as I've kept reading through the Pentateuch, that there is this press, really with almost all the books of Press into the promise. God has promised that he's going to give you the promised land. And we'll see that even later this morning. Now you have to go and take the promised land. You have to have faith to look at that land that you don't see yet, but it's yours. And But you have to go there and take it. You have to press into it. And here in context, because ultimately God rules over the whole universe and Jesus reigns. We say that God rules because here, these are prophetic declarations that God is making about the tribes of Israel that were involved, the tribes as a whole, but yet other countries and even individuals in the tribe. So God rules over the whole earth. And we see in Genesis 49, really from verse 9 to about verse 11, verses about the Messiah. And ultimately, verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, that Jesus will reign. And so that's why I'm saying that this text, ultimately, in its large context, is you are a representative of God. 
You're made in his image. Therefore, trust his promises. Press into those promises because God is in charge over all things and Jesus wins. And there's several different, we've said many, actually, map keys. That this is a map on how to press into these promises or these blessings that God has given us. How do we do that is told in this section, in this chapter. And we've looked at many of them, and ten. We're going to look at three more this morning. But before we do that, I just wanted to kind of remind ourselves about this passage. So before we look at the 11th map key, just a few reminders. One would be that God is in control. And we all believe that. We all know that. And I just mentioned that. But again, when you look at each one of these tribes, this is not history that's given to them, but it is foretelling what will happen to them. Some history is given. But ultimately, again, these are prophetic declarations. Again, chapter 49, verse 1. That I may tell you what will befall you in the days to come. It's not just that God looks into the future and and knows what's going to happen, but rather God determines what's going to happen. God knows the end from the beginning because Isaiah 46.10 says he will accomplish all of his good pleasure or purposes. So God is in control. God is the map maker of all of history. Number two, again, these are just reminders, helpful reminders for us before we go back into these different map keys. Remember, for Israel, they're receiving this inspired word. And as Israelis, as Jews, I imagine that they would look at all their 12 tribes and they would be very enamored with them, perhaps. Very focused on their relatives, on their ancestors. My ancestor was great. Fantastic. Whoever they might have been. But for most of these ancestors, perhaps Joseph would be the one where we don't see a lot of his sin, though we know he was a sinner. But we do know that all of these different leaders of these tribes, they were fallen men. They were sinful. So here are these, in a sense, heroes of Israel, the the, the leaders of Israel, the, the ones that would be the leaders of Israel. And it's 400 years later. And in a sense, these different leaders of the tribes, their ancestors, it seems to me that God is saying that these men are fallen. They're, they're weak. They also need a savior. All of us must be careful that we fix our eyes primarily on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. But also a, a third brief reminder is, can you imagine Judah? When you look at this passage, verse 3, it talks about Reuben, and it talks about Simeon and Levi in verse 5. And then he comes to Judah. Now, we know Judah earlier in chapter 30, and we know some things he did that, that were terrible. And you can probably imagine, at least I do in my mind, God says, because of the sin that Reuben and Simeon and Levi have committed, 
yes, there's grace and there's forgiveness, but there's a consequence of sin that those tribes, those leaders, those men are going to have to deal with. Now, Judah. And so I imagine Judah must have been, oh, great, here it comes. Right? His dad's there. His dad is speaking, maybe, to speaking to each one of the sons and giving them a type of blessing or, or anti-blessing. And, you know, starts with Reuben. Then he gets to Judah. And of Judah, I can imagine Judah must have been, I'm really going to get it. But instead, there's this incredible grace. Verses 9 and 10, that God, through Jacob, gives to Judah. Did, did Judah deserve to be the line of the Messiah? Was there anything that Judah did that God would be drawn to Judah? No, it was God's magnificent, amazing grace. And then for just a fourth brief reminder, and we've already talked about this, or we've mentioned it briefly, is you can look at verse 28. He blessed them, every one, with the blessings appropriate to him. You know, God is wise, God is just, God is right, God makes no mistakes, God mistreats nobody. Has God ever mistreated a person? Ever? God never has and never will. So then, with that in mind, let's get back into these map keys then. And we're talking about pressing forward because we know that God rules everything and we know that ultimately Jesus is going to win. So we want to press forward into God's promises seeking to become more and more like Jesus. Now, the 11th map key, we've looked at most of it, and it was basically develop a dynamic God-centeredness. That is more than water, more than, than air, more than food, more than a pacemaker. You and I need God above all things. And then we saw with the life of Joseph that he was both fruitful and an overcomer. You can even not just look at these verses, 24 and 25, 23, 22. But read his story, and you remember in his story, he was persecuted and harassed many, many times. But through it all, he never lost his faith in God. And he kept, as it were, pressing forward. Now, we also said that this God-centeredness, this dynamic God-centeredness, is not just this pressing forward in God, believing him, but it's because of, of who he is. We can press forward in God, for God, to know him, to love him, because of who he is. And we saw that in verse twenty, verses 24 and 25, right? This little book of the doctrine of God, almost. Mighty One, the Shepherd, the Rock, the El Shaddai. Some great descriptions of God. And we looked at that last week. And then we came, really, to this Third point, worship him for his goodness to you. Underneath this, develop a dynamic God-centeredness. And that is that we worship him for his goodness to you. And so what we said is this dynamic God-centeredness, it's not just that we know words on a page. It's not just that we've read a book by J.I. Packer, our A.W. Pink, our Tozer. Have any of you read Tozer? Yes, I, I, I like Tozer. Charnock. It isn't just that you've read these books on who God is that are really helpful, good, uh, convicting, 
instructive books. We love these books. But having a dynamic God-centeredness is not not just knowing these authors are being able maybe to refer to them, but rather it's this heart that delights and knows and, and exalts in God. And we said that it's like a fireworks. It's like 4th of July fireworks. It's like if you went to the baseball game, it was a two Fridays ago now, and they had all these beautiful, gorgeous fireworks. That's like here in verse 25 and 26 when it's blessings, 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 and even verse 28. There's over six, there's over seven, I think, times the word blessing is used. The word blessing here, I think, is it's used more here than perhaps Psalm 103 and Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. And there is coming from Jacob, of all people, when Jacob nears the end of his life, he exults in this explosive praise to God. And so we're going to finish this point, and what I'm seeking to press into you is this text, is that here is this rascal, Jacob, and Jacob, that name means what? You know, Jacob is this crafty what? Deceiver. This heel grabber. And yet, at the end of his life, he's finishing very, very well. And he's worshiping God and praising God, almost in this explosion of thankfulness and gratitude when he talks about God's blessing. And so we can see it this way. Your personal worship is the dynamic power and your drive to press forward into Christ. Your your power for Christ, your your vitality in your Christian life can't go past your worship of God. Your worship of God empowers you to press forward in Jesus. Let me just show you this, and though it's a reminder, I think it's helpful for us to get this point down, because we've seen it over and over in the book of Genesis. Psalm 63. And you might have thought I I would go there. We we could go to Psalm 62. Psalm 63. And listen to these words. Oh God, you are my God. Now, here it says that this is a Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. He's not in the temple. He's not in his palace. Oh God, you are my God, I will seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh yearns for thee, and a dry and weary land where there is no water. There is this pressing of his whole being to be with God and to know God and to worship God. I've seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Why? Because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips will praise you. That is a driving, powerful, motivating force in the believer's life. When that believer can say, your loving kindness is better than life. Watch the result. Look back at verse 3 of Psalm 63. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I'm going to lift up my hands in your name. Even my soul, it's, it's like my soul is satisfied with a big, thick, juicy steak. That's satisfied with marrow and fatness. 
and I'm going to praise you with, with joyful lips. Even when I go to bed, verse 6, when I, when I go to bed, I'm thinking about you. This is this God-centeredness. David, who was a sinner and committed some gross sin, but his heart, and he confessed it and got right with God, but his heart pressed hard to know God and to experience God in a biblical way so that even at night he would think deeply about God. He fell asleep apparently thinking about God. Why? Verse 7, for you have been my help. Says the same thing back in Genesis 49, verse 25, from the God of your father who helps you. David is saying in Psalm 63, verse 7, for you have been my help. And the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. And and your protection, you're my shepherd. And I I joyfully give you worship and praise. And then verse 8, beloved verse, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. And that's the verse actually that Tozer uses when he talks about knowing God and pursuing God in one of the books that Tozer wrote about the Lord. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. There is this soul that is, I will have God. More than anything else, I want to know God. And when you have that all-consuming passion in your life, the other passions of life, whatever they may be, uh, mundane or sinful, become less and less and less and less controlling. Remember, Jesus said, and this is eternal life, that you would know the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom he sent. Christianity, and really forever and ever, is about what? Knowing God by enjoying him and giving him glory forever. And when we have this, it gives us power. At the end of 1 John, John ends his book rather oddly. The end of 1 John says, Little children, guard yourself from from idols. Kind of a weird way to end. How, how would you like to write a letter and end it? Hey, guard yourself from idols. There, there's not even a, a, a you know, by grace and peace, I don't think. I think it's just guard yourself from idols. Because what we can do is different Puritans have always said our heart is like an idol factory. We can always make up new and new gods in our hearts. And then that will hurt our progress toward knowing God and overcoming sin and having joy. Because we have many substitutes. And here, in our passage of Genesis 49, Jacob, when he begins to wrap up his swan song, what he's saying to his children, his last will and testimony, he's exploding with this worship of how God has blessed him. And really, it's, I think, instructive for us. Again, your, your power in the Christian life to, to believe God and to trust His promises and to get joy from that cannot be past your level of worshiping God. And by worshiping God, I, I don't mean every morning that you wake up and, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Praise God! I don't mean that. It, it, it may be that you're open up your Bible and it says Jesus wept. What John was talking about this morning, Jesus, you're sympathetic to me. You you understand my struggles. You understand my pains. 
Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Praise you. Help me, Lord. Help me. Maybe it's that brief. Maybe it's one minute. Well, one minute every day is better than no minutes for a month. So do you understand? Am I being clear? When I say worship God, I don't mean, yes, our church service, but you at home are meeting with God, talking to him, reading his word, even if it's just one verse for one minute. You read the word, you pray back to him. Start there. Start there. Read one verse, pray for one minute. That's better than nothing ever. Now, what happens is as you worship God, as you read about his character, that he is the helper, he is your shepherd, he is your mighty one, he is your almighty provider, he is the one that graciously forgives us, what happens is that that will move your soul to pray for others. Worshiping God leads to wonderful, watchful intercession. And you can see this even here in verse 26. Jacob is talking about the blessings of God. Blessing, blessing, blessing. And then in verse 26, he says, May they be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. It's a type of intercessory prayer. And we've already seen in verse 18, Jacob stops this this blessing, this last will and testimony, he says in verse 18, For your salvation I wait, O Lord. Even there Jacob is praying. And now even here, Jacob also kind of intervenes into his own prayer and says, all, all these blessings I'm talking about for Jacob, may, may they really, 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 really just be on his head. You know, and I'm reminded of Psalm 23 again. Right? Because Psalm 23 talks about, Lord, I pray that you would prepare a table for me before my enemies and that your blessings they'd be like oil that's running down my uh, my head and perhaps part of that is talking about Genesis 49:26 but there is here there is a type of intercessory blessing our, our prayer that Jacob gives and i think that's also instructor for you and I. That is a God-centered dynamic of being God-centered and seeking to know God will not end with you going into a monastery and reading a book. That's not where it ends. If you really are God-centered, if your soul is, I gotta know God, then that results in you fighting on your knees for somebody else in prayer. Like Psalm eight, eight, Psalm six, sorry, Ephesians six eighteen, that you persevere in prayer for all the saints. It flows out of knowing God. If somebody knows God and is close to God, then they see how wonderful God is, how powerful God is, how miraculous God is, how gracious God is, and so that leads then for you to pray for someone else that needs that wonderful graces, almighty, powerful, intervening, intervening God. So again, when you worship God, it's going to empower you for the Christian life. And part of that is that it's going to drive you because you see how wonderful God is. You want other people to also see how wonderful God is. And so you pray for others. You intercede for others. 
So then let me end this point, this develop a dynamic God-centeredness with these questions. Who takes better care of you than, than God? Does anybody care for you better than God? Because this section says, the shepherd, the one who helps you, and El Shaddai is not just the Almighty God, but the God that is having all the power to meet the needs that you really, really have. That God. So this dynamic God-centeredness, then, means that you know in your heart that nobody can meet your needs like God can. Nobody. Another question, did God ever fail Jacob or Joseph? Joseph was in a dungeon. His family forsook him and deserted him. It was a type of attempted murder. They trafficked him. They sold him into slavery. Did God fail Joseph? Because you've said that God rules. God's in control of everything. Did God fail Joseph? It, it might have felt like to Joseph at different times that God failed him. But did God really fail him? No. And there's no indication really with Joseph that Joseph thought that God failed him. We, I, I imagine he was tempted to think that. But what we see in Joseph is this Psalm 63, verse 8. Clinging hard unto God. I will not let go of God ever but pressing hard into him. God never fails. Jesus says, I would never leave you. I would never forsake you. You know, there are so many Christian martyrs, both men and women. When, you know, William Tyndale basically burned to the stake, had gunpowder, John Huss, you know, so many different martyrs. Did God ever forsake them or leave them? Did God fail them? No. And they went through extraordinary, difficult times. But yet God was with them. And they were able to endure those times and keep the faith because they worshipped God. They drew close to God for their whole life. By God's grace, that's also what, what we would like to do. There is a 12th map key. There's a 12th map key. We can press forward to know God, to to trust his promises by being sure that we have this God-centeredness because we're rooted in God to know him and, and to trust him and to glory in him. But there's also this 12th map key, and that's this. Press forward by not using human standards as a foundation for achievement. Press forward by not using human standards as a foundation for achievement. Press forward by not using human standards as a foundation for achievement. That is, the world does not share God's view of the what or the how of success. The world does not share God's view of what is success and how do you get success. And we see this in verse 27 about Benjamin. And I think we can say it this way. Achievement is not determined by social status or appearance. Now, it is in the world, but in God's eyes... Your social status and your parents does not equal God's type of success. Think about Benjamin. Was he born first? No, he was born last. 
So in that day and age, he was a baby of the family. He was a little baby boy. He wouldn't be thought of as having priority in the family or preeminence in the family or of having the most significance or the most usefulness. Not only that, but historically, the tribe of Benjamin was most likely the smallest. So by appearance and by social status, Benjamin would have thought to have been of tiny significance, of tiny usefulness, of not having the preeminence and strength and power to really be able to achieve what his older, bigger brothers could or or would achieve. But when you look at this little passage, it says Benjamin is what kind of a wolf? A ravenous wolf. And the Hebrew is basically, it tears its prey in the morning, and then in the evening it shares it with the other wolves. It's Actually, maybe a little bit even more graphic is you could paraphrase it this way. Benjamin, a wolf, killing more than it needs, it shares its prey. Killing more than it needs, it shares its prey. Here's Benjamin, not a lion, but it is like a wolf. And it's so hungry that it kills so much prey because it's, I would say maybe like a wolverine. Small but what? Ah, Small but powerful and feisty and determined and does so much damage. There's so much meat left over of the prey that it killed. It's able to share with other friends and neighbors that it has. Dominating and clever and strong and determined. Now, if you consider the history of Benjamin, even in terms of their faithfulness, well, in the book of Judges, they did some pretty wicked things. But ultimately, in the end, the two most faithful tribes were Judah and Benjamin. That was southern Israel. But what we do see is we see here in Scripture this idea of ravenous wolves. We see it being pictured in many different places. Let me start with the end and kind of go back to the beginning. First Chronicles 8.40. First Chronicles 8.40, just as an example. First Chronicles 8.40, the sons of Ulam were mighty men of valor, archers, and had many sons and grandsons, 150 of them. All of these were the sons of Benjamin. Mighty men of valor, archers, and many had sons and grandsons. But yet, they were one, if not the smallest, tribe. First uh, Samuel fourteen thirteen. First Samuel fourteen thirteen. We know that Jonathan, David's friend, a friend that was like a brother. was from the tribe of Benjamin. 1 Samuel 14, verse 13. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet with his armor bearer, 
behind him, and they fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer put some to death after him. And you can read a little bit before and in a little bit a little bit after. Jonathan was a, a mighty warrior of God and his own right. And even we could take time and we could read about Ud and Judges chapter three. And also he was a mighty warrior, a judge that God used. What I am saying that the Bible says, based upon this verse, is that Benjamin, although they look to be small and insignificant, they're the last to get blessed in this list. They were the last to be born. They could actually be mighty warriors of God. And they could be mighty in doing many things. They, Sadly, they were even mighty in doing some wicked things. But they were a powerful tribe, and they were used by God to conquer Canaan. And so this really is a picture that though this is a small tribe, it could be a small, scary tribe. Not just a wolf, but a ravenous wolf that's looking to kill its prey. Now, again, Israel, as they have been redeemed from Egypt, and they're wandering around trying to get into the promised land, and they have one of the smallest tribes, if not the smallest tribe, is Benjamin. And what does it say about Benjamin? Though they're small, and though you might think they're insignificant, they can accomplish much. They're powerful. They're, they're wild. And though they're small, they can do great deeds. And so the, the picture that's being painted by the Holy Spirit is social status, human strength, by a parent is not the issue. It's God. God is the issue. And God can use anyone however he sees fit. And so then we press forward, trust God's promises. Doesn't matter when you were born, who your parents are. Doesn't matter about necessarily how you look. What matters is who? God. God is what matters. And this is still true in the Christian life. And we see this even for salvation. Look at 1 Corinthians with me just briefly. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. These are things you know, but we have to be reminded of them. Again, Benjamin was the smallest tribe. It would have been thought to be somewhat insignificant. You're, you're the baby. You're the baby. But yet, they were mighty warriors of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many of you, there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. For salvation, especially, God doesn't save you because you had great parents. God didn't save you because you have a great Christian heritage. God saves you because he wanted to. God didn't save you because of what anybody had done except for what Jesus Christ had done. 
There was nothing about our, about our appearance, our, our social status, our, our history that necessarily drew God to us, but rather in His mercy and grace and love, He said, I want to save you for my glory. Even Romans 9, verses 15, 16, 17, it says, a beautiful verse, and what it says is not the one who wills or the one who runs, but God that has the mercy. And that whole section is about how God doesn't choose the firstborn. He chooses the secondborn in order to, to shatter the, the world system. There is a way, in other words, that the world, and at times even the church, can expect God to work. And God often doesn't do that. So that he gets the power and he gets the glory. Even in terms of sanctification, even in terms of becoming more and more like Jesus, not just trusting Jesus, but becoming more and more like Jesus, not just trusting Jesus for salvation, but growing in our relationship with Christ. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5 For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. I'm looking at verse 3 and 4 primarily. That is when we fight against our sin and we fight against the sin of the world. We don't do it in a sinful way. We do it in a God-centered, depending upon the Holy Spirit, not depending on our own flesh, depending upon His Word and His Spirit. Looking at Christ. A more appropriate text, perhaps, more to the point, would be Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. This idea, again, of we're not going to trust in appearance and status. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. And then in Colossians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is going to expand on all that with all the the remaining verses. There can be asceticism, legalism, mysticism, that these are all different ways that you can become more holy. And God says, no, that's all about social status and appearance and things that were... Self-made by hand. Self-made religion. You can look at verse 23 of Colossians 2. The parents of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but have no value against the flesh. So what I am saying, that what this passage paints for us in Genesis 49, is that God can take that which looks the weakest and use it even for something that is fantastically great, right? Even if back in 1 Corinthians 1, the whole universe is reconciled and redeemed through something that would seem what? Foolish. For somebody to die on a cross 
meant that that person had committed a heinous crime. And only a loser would die on a cross. And so when the Greeks saw, heard that Jesus died on a cross, their first thought would have been what? That's not power, that's weakness. And for the Jew, it was scandalous. Cursed is that person, that man that hangs on a tree. But yet, it is the very power and wisdom of God, the cross of Jesus. That which can look small and insignificant, perhaps worthless, that's one way the world looks at it. God looks at it in a far different way. Even in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul said, When I'm weak, I am what? Strong. There's one way the world looks at things. There's a different way that God looks at things. We want to look at things the way that God looks at them. The strongest thing is what the world considers to be the weakest thing. That is somebody dying on a cross. For the Messiah, for Jesus to die on a cross and to rise again, is, is more powerful than anything in the universe. And that is the reality. So we can press forward. We press on into the promises of God by not judging ourselves with social status or appearance or how strong I am or how strong these other people. God is strong and the Jesus is with me and the cross has infinite power. And so I glory in the cross. And if I am weak, then in Christ I am strong. So we want to press forward by not using human standards. And it has so many applications. It's not about money. It's not about toys. It's not about social media likes. It's not about any of that. It's not about how many people like you. It's not. It's about knowing God, pleasing God, making disciples for the Lord. That is what is true achievement and true success. Now, finally then, there's also this last map key we're going to look at. This last map key we're going to look at. And we'll stop here. This last map key is this. Press forward, this is 13. Press forward by living in faith now to die in faith then. Press forward by living in faith now to die in the faith then. I I, I doubt anybody here would say, when I die, I don't want to have faith in God. Nobody here, I, I, I don't think, would say, when I die, that's when I don't want to believe in God any longer. Who wants to die not believing in God? That is, if you believe in God now, you don't want to be on your deathbed and say, I I don't believe in God now. That's the last thing you would want to do. You and I, when we die, we want to be, God is real, the Bible is, is real, Jesus is true, and I'm going to see Jesus very soon. Praise you, God. Glory to God. And we want to be able to die in such a way that that Jacob did. He breathed his last and was gathered to his people. And when he finishes his life, he ends on such a high note of blessing to God. Who doesn't want to end their life the way that Jacob ended his life? 
We want to end well. And Jacob is ending his life well. He is dying in faith. That is, he has faith in God when he dies. And though he didn't have faith his whole life, we see that he did have faith for a lot of his life and made progress in his faith. And so we want to be sure that when we pass away, that we are pressing forward now in faith so that when we die, we die well with faith in God. So what does that mean? What does this involve? You can look at your notes if you have them. First, it's this. We have to realize this. You would not experience all of God's promises being fulfilled in this life, but rather you look forward to them in the next life. Live in faith now to die in faith in the future involves understanding not all of God's promises are going to be fulfilled now. Otherwise, you'd be in heaven. And this place ain't heaven. Right? If all of the God's promises were fulfilled now, that God answered them now, then this would be heaven, and this, this is not heaven. Not yet. But even for Jacob, God had promised Jacob in Genesis 35, there's going to be kings coming from you, and you're going to be in the land. The, the, the land is yours. When Jacob dies in this section, there are not kings, though Joseph is second in charge. It's close. Kind of like prefiguring, prefiguring maybe what is going to happen. But is Jacob in the promised land? No. He's not. Not all of God's promises that God made to Abraham and Jacob were completely fulfilled yet. But still, he died in faith. He was looking toward them. And please note these two things. First, he says that he's going to be gathered to his people. And even here at verse 33, it says, gathered to his people. When Jacob finished in charging his sons, he drew his feet into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. That's not saying at that moment his bones were taken to where Abraham's bones were. That's not what happened. That would take time. But rather he gathered, he was gathered to his people as the idea that his soul slashed his spirit went to heaven to be with Abraham and Isaac. And Rachel and, and, and Leah. He's talking about the afterlife. And Jacob is saying, well, once I, I'm gone and, and I'm in heaven and I'm with that family there, be sure that my body is buried in the field that's in the land of Canaan. That's why all these details are given, really in verses 29 all the way down to verse 32, is that Jacob is saying, I believe God's going to answer his promise and my descendants are going to be in and own and possess the promised land. And that's what Abraham and Isaac believed. And that's why their bones are buried in this field, in this cave there, in this land, in Canaan. So take my bones back to there. I'm already, I'm going to be with my people. But you take my bones there because I'm trusting that God's going to answer and fulfill his promise. Did God do that? God did that. And then Israel, AD 70, 
And even before that, with Babylon, several times, they've been banished and driven out of the land. And then today, where are they? They're back in the land. God keeps keeping his promise to the nation Israel. God is faithful. And having this plot of land where, and perhaps cave where the bones of his ancestors, his father and his grandfather were buried, laying to rest, that was a kind of deposit saying that God will fulfill his promise and we're placing this deposit of faith, trusting that God will do what he said. And God did. Yeah, Joseph, I'm sorry, Jacob, he didn't see every single one of God's promises fulfilled in his own lifetime. But God did fulfill that promise according to his time, his way, and his method. But now, uh, additionally, this deathbed faith that we see here by Jacob didn't happen automatically, but it was built by faith that we exercise now. Jacob has this faith now that he's exercising, even though he he's not experiencing every single one of God's promises being immediately fulfilled in his own lifetime, he has seen enough of God's faithful promises fulfilled so that on his deathbed, he's trusting God. Again, it's not automatic. That's why you, you have to press into God. You have to press into his promises so that on your deathbed, it's not this tremendous shock to you that pretty soon you're entering into eternity and you're going to meet with Jesus. What's going to happen? Who, who's good enough to meet with Jesus and to pass the exam and to go to heaven because of what you've done? Who's good enough? I flunk. I flunk. Every day I flunk. Failure. Fail. Not just fail. Rebel. Sin. Over and over and over and over and over. My hope is only in that righteousness of Christ. Through faith. Not perfect faith. But through faith. And so this faith, if you're not pressing into it now, then on that deathbed, it could be really, it could be more difficult than it needs to be. This faith that we have now, it's not a faith that, that sees. There are promises that God has made that we may not necessarily see them all fulfilled. God forgives us. God gives us his spirit. God causes all things to work together for good. Do you always see that good? God causes all things to work together for good. For those that love him and are called according to his purpose. Do you always see that, that, that end result of good? I don't. Sometimes things happen in my life, and Lord, I, I, I don't see how this is, is good. Theologically, I can work it out in my head, but to actually taste and see that goodness of it, Lord, I do that by faith. Looking forward to heaven. That's why I think Jesus tells Thomas... And John chapter 20, blessed are those who see and believe, truly. But blessed more are those who 
Don't see, but believe. Paul, when he writes to the church at Corinth that experienced many signs and wonders and miraculous gifts exercised in their congregation, Paul tells them that faith is not walking by sight. Faith walks by faith in God's word. Peter, who saw the transfiguration of Jesus, he says in First Peter chapter 1, we believe in the one that we do not what? See. There is in biblical Christianity, even the book of Hebrews, right? Chapter 11, verse 1, is that faith believes in God and his word and does not have to see. We didn't plan it this way, but John preached from John 11 where Jesus talks about believing in order to see. We believe to see. We don't see to believe. And that's the same thing with faith. We don't necessarily now experience all the promises of Jesus. Do you see Jesus today? He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. Do do you see Jesus? We see evil. We see even escalating evil. We see people die. We see loved ones die. And the older you get, the more people, the more friends, the more family, they die. But we believe in order to see. We believe in God and his word. There is this element of faith that's like Moses. Listen to Hebrews chapter 11. And so what I am talking about now is that there is this faith that we have that does not have to be satisfied by seeing something out in front of us, but rather we rest in God's promises and we look forward to being with Christ. Hebrews 11, verse 26. Considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, talking about Moses, for he was looking to the reward. So Moses, all the gold and emeralds and rubies and sapphires of Egypt, he rejected them. He saw them. But he gave that up because he was looking to something and someone greater, to Christ and all that Christ had for him. Or we can say it this way. God will keep every single promise he made to you. But those promises will ultimately be fulfilled not in this life, but the next one. The life that you and I live now is all prologue. It's all, it's all prologue. It's short. It's brief. We're not even into chapter one yet. When, when we pass away, when we go to be with Christ, that is when we're out of the shadow lands and we're in this light, we're in this land of light and love and of perfection, which, if you come to camp, you will hear more about heaven. But you have to come to camp to hear about it. Six sermons about heaven. And that's ultimately where God's promises will be completely fulfilled. Why? Because that's forever. Ephesians 2, 7, in order that age is to come, you may experience the surpassing riches of his kindness and grace from age to age. 
forever and forever and forever, God's going to prove to you that he keeps his promises. And they're far greater than you could ever, ever imagine. God keeps his promises that he made to you in this life. But there are a lot of them that will be completely, finally, fully realized when you see Jesus face to face. And so that's why you keep pressing on. That's why you keep believing. And the more that you press into it, the more you press into God, into Christ, into these promises, then the more invigorated you are to keep going further. So that when that day comes, and you or even a beloved loved one dies, that though there is sadness and there is grief there because there is departure, it is not faith ending. Your faith doesn't end. Your faith rather is stretched. And you grow. And you give the glory to God. Live in faith now, by believing God now. And some of you, maybe right now, you need to repent and trust Jesus now. Don't wait till your deathbed to repent and trust Jesus. Repent now. Last week, I went ice skating. I'd never been ice skating ever in my life. In fact, I've only gone rollerblading once in my life. The last week, I went ice skating with my family. They had been several times before. But it was brand new for me, and I knew it would be a piece of cake, because I'm just a stellar athlete. I'm being sarcastic. So I put on my ice shoes, and I had to have help to have them even tied and and laced. So somebody tied and laced them for me. Uh, Jose, my my neighbor, the, the believing neighbor, we were of them. I never have stepped on anything so slippery ever in my life. As soon as I put both feet in that ice, I licked at Jose, and I said, Jose, I can't do this. This is absolutely crazy. I'm going to fall everywhere and break my wrist and my, my ankles. And, and he's just smiling. You can do it. You can do it. Just hang on to the wall. Meanwhile, his kids and my kids are like, do, 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 do. And so the wall's right there, and I'm just, I'm not exaggerating. I put both my arms like this on the wall, and my feet are just going, this is, this is crazy. Why, why did I say yes to this? I'm, I'm almost 55 years old. It's insane. So I go around once, and then I think, no, I'll go around one more time, I'll be done, and then I can tell everybody I've ice skated. So I'll go around one more time. And then the second time I'm going around, Thomas keeps coming by. Dad, get off the wall! Dad, get off the wall! I'm not going off the wall, son. Get off the wall, Dad! Then pretty soon these little girls come by. Mr. Sheck, you can take my hand. (laughs) Okay, I'll take your hand. So little girl takes my hand. <laughs> so she goes to let go. Don't let go! <laughs> I said, don't let go. <laughs> I was petrified. But I ran around two or three times. And then my daughter got me, and then my son got me, and went around now like, I don't know, four or five times. Still, every now and then I grab hold of the wall. 
But then eventually, the more that I got away from that wall and actually ice skated and really pressed into it, lo and behold, I actually enjoyed it. And pretty soon, I learned a little bit on how to ice skate. But if I would not have let gone, let gone, if I would have not let go of that, that wall, I never would have learned how to ice skate at all, ever. I was I was absolutely petrified. And I needed a little bit of help. But once I got onto the ice and started to move, and people helped me some, once I began to really experience the, the joy of just coasting and moving around, it was actually really fun. And the Christian life, you have to, not to be let go and let God, but you've got to let go of the wall, and you've got to get into the ice, and you have to press forward into it. Otherwise, you're never going to experience God the way that you could. You have to place yourself out there with faith in Christ. Otherwise, then you may not see God fulfill his promises. You you may be blind to it. So, trust God, confess where you haven't, and press forward into faith. Lord, may you use these words from your text to help all of us to press forward in faith, to trust you, and to sometimes to take a step, just a small step, Lord, even getting any of the help we can, taking a step, Lord, that we can go forward in you, trusting your promises, Lord. We thank you and we praise you for Christ's sake. Amen.